We are now in our third installment of our series from Egypt to the Promised Land. And today we are going to look at a subject uh, subtitled uh, Preparing for Passover. Oh, Passover is so important, so important in the life of the Hebrews, uh, in the, the understanding of the New Testament. And there's a great preparation that comes uh, for that Passover. Now, I want to uh, sort of just uh, spark our thoughts, kind of get us back in track of what we are talking about. And I want to remind you by uh, showing you once again our uh, little map, spiritual geography. And we said there's only three... Uh, uh, places where we can be. We can be spiritually in Egypt, spiritually in Sinai or the wilderness, or spiritually in the promised land, in Canaan. We uh, said that uh, the Apostle Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he, he makes a, a running summary of the Exodus and in two verses declare, declares basically the same thought and it's this. These things happened to them as example and were written down as warnings for us. Examples and warnings for us. So we're not to just ignore the history of the Hebrews. It's there to teach us. We concluded last week's message specifically with the thought of groaning. Groaning to God. When God speaks to Moses, I have heard the groans of my people. And we said, just if, if you just need to groan to God and say, look, if you're really there, if you really exist, just come. And I shared uh, at the end uh, my own testimony how in a very primitive sort of prayer, I just said, you know, I don't know if you even exist, but if you do, come change my life. You think, wow, that's not a very theological prayer, is it? Hey, but he heard it. He heard it. So I want to uh, just remind us of Psalm 102. We, 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 in Psalm 102, what we concluded is, it's not just about only the Hebrews. God says it to all of us. For He looks down from His holy heights, from heaven the Lord gazes upon the earth to hear, to hear the groaning of the prisoners. To hear the groaning of the prisoners. To see, to free those who were doomed to death. So God says, I'm, I'm more than, than willing and prepared to listen. Just call. Now there are some events leading up to the deliverance. And we can't just sort of skip over them. I mean, they didn't when they made the movie, right? They called it the Ten Commandments. So, I mean, they gave time to it, so maybe we should too. And see if we can find something practical to ourselves. So let's pray and ask God to guide us here this morning. Father, we simply ask that through your Spirit, your Word would reach our hearts. It is always difficult 
to apply to each and every one of us specifically from this point, from this pulpit. But Father, your word is powerful and your spirit knows exactly where we are at each moment in our pilgrimage. And so I pray that you would, in your sovereignty, apply your word to our needs. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, what are the events leading up to this deliverance? Uh, we, we know what happened. Uh, uh, Moses is out in the wilderness tending sheep and um, finds a burning bush. Uh, he talks to the bush and the bush says, I'm God, now go get my people out of bondage. And uh, he has to go back to Egypt. Now, we said Egypt was the... Anybody out there? Egypt's the world, right? To such an extent that when we come to the book of Revelation, there is a problem in the book of Revelation, there's a problem with Jerusalem. To the extent that uh, um, there's been uh, a, a wrongful offering done at the, at the temple, and, uh, and Jerusalem has just sort of gone by the wayside. And you know what God calls in the book of Revelation for one instance, the city of Jerusalem, he calls it Egypt. Now that doesn't stand for something good. Egypt never has, Egypt never will. So when we speak about Egypt, we think in regards to the world. And that it implies bondage. It is the land of many gods. And that's one of the things that God is, uh, uh, Jehovah is about to deal with in regards to Egypt. The land of this polytheism, the many gods that are there. In a book uh, entitled The Spirits of Nature by Otar Wendel, a Swedish uh, Egypt, uh, Egyptologist, uh, he uh, subtitled the book Religion of the Egyptians. He identifies 115 gods, 115 Egyptian gods. He doesn't say that that's all they had. He just simply says, that's as many as I can identify. Polytheism. Now, you know, today, we would think, well, in the West, we are not polytheistic. But then you have to ask yourself, what is a god? What constitutes a god? And what does it mean to worship a god? Well, worship means to ascribe worth, correct? Worship means to ascribe worth. So whatever your heart values, that could be worship. That could be a god, if you value it too much. So God is about to deal with the people that are polytheistic has a point to prove. God wants to teach Moses and the Hebrews something, and he has a point to prove. So in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14, there's a burning bush. Moses uh, finds a burning bush. God talks to the burning bush, and eventually Moses asks this very simple question. Who are you? And what do I tell the people? Who do I tell them sent me? And God simply answers, I am. Tell them I am sent you. 
Now, that I am is uh, what's called uh, the tetragrammon, which is four letters. It's Y-H-W-H, uh, most commonly pronounced as Yahweh. And it comes actually from a verb, which means to be. God says, I just simply am, had no beginning, have no end. I do not exist on the basis of anyone, I exist on the basis of myself. So tell them, I am. Now folks, for us today, that's really not an awful lot of new news. But it would be if we were truly polytheistic. If in our homes and in our temples and, and in our places of uh, public adherence, we would have numerous amounts of gods displayed. God had a point to prove. He's about to teach the Hebrews that they must come out from among the polytheism. And so he teaches them, for example, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, what is called the Shema. Now every... Even a, even a liberal Jew knows the Shema. Because you learn it when you're little. Just something you learn. Now, uh, if you do a proper... Uh, um, uh, boys, do... Help me here. Thank you. Bar mitzvahs, you know, if you do a proper bar mitzvah, you do a lot of memorizing out of the book of Deuteronomy. But like I said, even a, even a very non-religious Jew knows the Shema. You know the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So every good or not good Jew learns, Shema Israel Adonai Elohim Eshad. It's just something they learn. There's only one God. Because God had a point to prove. There is no other God. So he begins by disarming the gods of the Egyptians. Ero, the ten plagues. We mentioned this in our first installment. The ten plagues are a direct attack to all of the gods, or at least to ten of the gods of the Egyptians. Uh, because of the order of the plagues, and because who those gods are as, they, as we come down to the end, it is almost uh, logical to conceive that God takes issue with the ten most important gods. Because the last three of them are the very important gods of the Egyptians. We'll take a look at that in a few seconds. So why the plagues? What was the purpose? What was the ultimate reason for the plagues? And uh, what's with that hardening of the heart of Pharaoh? He does it again and again and again. To the point that when you get to the book of Romans, Paul even makes issue about the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. So I want to just read a few verses. Would you please follow with me chapter 10? Chapter 10. We want to read the first two verses of Exodus. Chapter 10. Now, uh, Liz read to us chapter 9. And uh, you, you saw there God saying, For my glory, for my purpose, I want to show them my power. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may, be, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons, of your grandsons, how I made mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I 
and the Lord. God wanted to show them who He was. It was a showdown between Yahweh and the gods of the Egyptians. And then there were the people. He wanted to soften, yet also to frighten, to bring about the reality of one God to the people. So if you would just uh, look at chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Now by chapter 11, by the way, um, we got uh, nine, of the, uh, nine of the plagues are done. And things are really rough. I mean, they've seen all kinds of situations. And when you get to chapter 11, uh, this is what's going to happen. The Hebrews are supposed to ask the Egyptians for gold and silver for the road, for the trip out. And uh, watch this. Verse 2 of chapter 11. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Now look at verse 3. And the Lord God and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Hey, do you blame the Egyptians for handing it all over? In, ver in chapter 13, you know what we're told? That when it was time to leave, they literally spoiled the, the, the Egyptians. They, they took everything. The Egyptians just gave them everything they had. Why? Because they were afraid. They saw the works of God. And basically it was, I don't want to get your God mad at me. So yeah, you can have it, you can have it, you can have it. There was a point to be made as to who God was. So we get on to Romans chapter 9. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. I'll read it to you. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. That is, that I might display my power in you and that my name... Not the other God's names. My name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So the ten plagues were an assault on the Egyptian gods. Moving up in importance, leading up to the three greatest ones at the end. So let's look at those plagues really quickly. And uh, just kind of, I want to just remind you sort of what it was. There's our ten plagues. There was the turning of water into blood. Alright, there was a god called Hapi, and he was the god of the Nile River. And for seven days, the river was, water was useless. Well, the magicians wanted to prove that they could do the same thing, so they made more blood. So they added blood to the blood, and somehow that made things better. Okay, well that, uh, alright, you know. Now, then there was the second plague, and this was uh, frogs. Frogs were everywhere in their homes all over the place. And uh, that was against a god called Hek, which was the goddess of birth. And she was a goddess who had a frog-like head. And uh, she was the, the goddess of offspring. And Pharaoh in the second plague sort of calls Moses in and says, hey look, you know what, uh, where do you want to go? You know, just, just get rid of the frogs. Whatever you do, just get rid of them. You know how they got rid of the frogs? The frogs? Scripture says they died. Boom. And then they just had to pile them up. 
Can you start to picture this? Ugh. I mean, think about it. You know, they had to wait for Thursday when it was garbage day, you know? And the truck came by to pick them up. And the stench that must have been there just to remind them who's boss. Oh, and by the way, Pharaoh, yeah, he recanted on that and hardened his heart and said, no, you're not really going anywhere. Then there was the third play. That was gnats. Uh, and they came from the dust of the earth. There was a god named Geb, and this god was the god of the earth. Mother earth. Yeah, And uh, the gnats were on men, they were on animals. And the magicians continued to try to reproduce these things. And this time they just looked at Pharaoh and said, This is the finger of God. They're starting to get it. But Pharaoh's not getting it. And something happens after the third plague. A barrier is created. <clears throat> there is an exclusion zone that begins from the third plague down, including four, five, six, all the way up to the ninth plague. And this exclusion zone simply makes it so that Goshen or the Hebrews are not touched by the plagues. They are left aside. And you know why? God says to us in that uh, fourth plague, He says, Because I want to make separation. I want to make a difference between you and them. God says, we're here to prove who we are, who they are. And so in the fourth plague, there is the plague of flies. And that goes against some God called Keper. And he's the God of the animals, you know. He's sort of like the God of, uh, of beetles and flies and little furry animals. And uh, uh, it was in the people on the houses. And again, Pharaoh calls in Moses and says, Alright, I'll let you go, but you got to get rid of all of these flies. And Moses goes out, he prays, the flies go back away. And what does Moses do? He says, you know what, I changed my mind. You're not going anywhere. The fifth one came, it was against cattle. Now that was very important. Because you see, there was a God called a peace. And he was a bull. He, had the, he, was a, he looked like a bull. And, and it's where they, they prayed and, and, and sacrificed to their livelihood. Alright? And uh, they died. And then there came the sixth plague. And that was boils. There was a God named Isis. She was uh, the goddess of healing. And, uh, and the boils were on men and on animals. And the word animals there is sort of like um, uh, domesticated animals, tamed animals. So it was kind of like on animals and their pets. Now I don't know if you know this, but one of the things we learn in Egyptology is that they were the, some of the first races to, to domesticate cats and dogs. And if you've ever seen pictures and stuff of uh, Egyptian Egyptology, you'll see that there's even a, a dog that's, uh, that's one, of their, one of their gods. So God attacked that. Hail was the seventh one. And it was against the two gods. He, he takes on two gods. One named Newt. He, uh, she was the goddess of the sky. And the next one you've seen a lot in all the movies. Because it's a falcon. You always see a falcon. Wherever you see Egyptian artifacts, stuff. His, his name was Horus. And he was the male side of the god of the, of the skies. And so even uh, astrology was taken on. By uh, by God, and uh, there was these, this this hail. It was mixed with fire, and something went out at that point. There was a warning that went out to everybody. Moses said, "Tell everybody to get out of the fields." And some actually obeyed. Some of the Egyptians. We'll read about that in a little bit. And Pharaoh 
does something he's not done up to this point. He calls in Moses and he exclaims, I have sinned. And at this point you're reading and you go, well, he surrendered, he gave up. And he says, please stop that hail. And so Moses goes out, he prays, the hail stops. And, uh, you know, I changed my mind. You're not going anywhere. And they're playing. it seems that they, this game going back and forth between the two of them. The eighth plague was again a very st- a strategic plague. Because this one attacks one of their main gods uh, of the last uh, ten. One of the very main gods, his name is Seth. And uh, he was the god of wealth or food or provision. And uh, he attacks this god and the crops that were left from the hill, well, they get taken on by all the locusts. And again, Pharaoh calls in Moses and says, I've sinned, please get, the, get all these uh, locusts out of here. And strong wind comes, takes them into the Red Sea, and Pharaoh plays the game again. And he says, you're not going anywhere. Then comes the ninth plague. And it was meant to show them that even their most powerful God had, could not stand up to Yahweh. Three days of darkness. Now if you, if you pay attention and you watch the Ten Commandments or any movie to do with, with Egypt, you hear this name, the God Ra. He was the God of the sun. He was the, he was the, the universal God of all Egyptians. And, and, and He was the main God of all the gods that were non-visible. Three days of darkness. This time, Moses gets called into Pharaoh's presence. And this time, Pharaoh says, If I ever see you again, you won't live. And Moses' answer to him was, You're right. You won't ever see me again. And uh, he walks out. Now, all of that stage is set for one more plague. And that is the death of the firstborn. And you say, well, what God was that? Well, God said, from the son of Pharaoh to the son of a slave. If, if they did not prepare properly for that plague, they would die. And do you remember what finally broke the back of Pharaoh? The death of his son. Pharaoh was seen as a god. There was a deity there. And God said, Pharaoh... I'm greater than you. And his offspring, who was the crown prince, who should have become the next god of Egypt, dies. And by it, God simply proves to the people, there is no god but me. There is no god but Yahweh. And so, death comes to Pharaoh's son, and self is placed on the altar. Well, when you look at all of these uh, gods, and you realize that they are things that today have to do with our life, and we think about some of the things that we ourselves find in worship, there's dependence, offspring, there is mother nature, there's animals. I have no problem against animals. And we're not to be cruel to animals. But we're not to worship animals either. You know, I... People, I, every time I get a chance to talk to somebody that wants to save the whales, and, and I'm okay with saving the whales. I have no problem with saving the whales. 
But then I, I asked those same people, what about uh, pro-life? Oh no, no, yeah, a woman has a choice. I said, let me see, you want to save the whales, but you want to kill the babies? And the answer is yes. And you go, well then I got a problem with your whales. You know, cause I, because you have put animals ahead of God's greatest creation, which is man. The livelihood, wealth, astronomy, uh, health, uh, the pantheism of the greatest God, Ra. And then of course, self, I am God. And God says, no, you're not. Really? I think our society is pantheistic. We have more gods than we even care to admit. Because we ascribe worth to a lot of things as a society. We value in our hearts sometimes, even as Christians, things, people, places more than we do our own God who died on the cross to grant us life. So it is uh, something worth thinking that God went so much out of His way to teach one nation, the Hebrews, there is only one God. He was preparing them. God means to have us to Himself. Do you know that the God that teaches us to share says He doesn't want to share? He doesn't want to share your heart. He doesn't want to share your loyalty. He doesn't want to share your worth. He says, I get it all. On, on eight occasions, <clears throat> in the Torah, those first five books of Moses, eight occasions, God says to Moses, teach my people, I am a jealous God. He wants our attention. He means to have us to Himself. He wants to make separation between His people and those that are in Egypt. Just like He did with the plagues. He wants to teach them a very foreign concept. A concept that had yet to be taught by any God. Holiness. No God had ever taught holiness. God's about to take them out into the desert to a mountain called Sinai. And He's about to teach them holiness. And He begins by telling them, don't touch the mountain. It's holy. And so what's that mean? You may think you understand holiness, but that's because you've been hearing about it since you were a little kid. But what if no one ever, you'd never heard that word? It's not part of your vocabulary. You don't even have a word for it in your language. And someone comes and says to you, God is holy. Your expression would be, what's that? And God is about to take time to teach the Hebrews holiness. That is ascribed to only one God. And so... God begins to prepare them to take them out of a land of, uh, of many gods, okay, of uh, polytheism, to take them to another land of polytheism. The Canaanites, they had their gods. And God says, I need to teach you to only give your heart to me. You know, I, I, I see among our, our church people, uh, we, God takes us out of Egypt, puts us into Sinai, we start our way to the promised land, and somewhere along the way, we pick up other gods. We leave the land of the polytheism of Egypt, only to find yet other gods on our way, on our trip down. 
in our, in, in, in our pilgrimage. And we end up giving our hearts to other things, to other people, to other situations. Whether it's our work or our play, whether it's the, the things that we gather and, and covet, whatever we give our heart, and we don't realize God took us out of polytheism only for us to give yet our hearts again in another land where there are other polytheistic uh, uh, people. And so God needs to prepare them, not only to take them out of Egypt, but to bring them into Canaan. And why did God allow these ten plagues? It was a testimony. It was a testimony to who He was. I want to read to you just a few verses. In, in, the, in the passage there in Exodus, one of the verses that we didn't get to says this, The officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord, hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. Did you hear what that said? The officials of Pharaoh feared the word of the Lord. You know, after X amount of uh, plagues, they said, Nah, we'd rather obey this new God than Pharaoh. He was making a point to those people. In chapter 11 verse 3 it says this, The Lord made the Egyptians favorable, disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. God was making a mark. There was a testimony being raised to the nations who was Yahweh. In chapter 12 it simply says this, Many other people went up with them. Do you know that Egyptians went with the Hebrews in the Exodus? There were Egyptians who followed through with the rituals. Because after nine plagues they said, You know, we're going to listen to this God. He's got our attention. And even Egyptians went in the Exodus to follow after. So, God means to get our attention, folks. I want to close with this final thought. Disarming. Disarming the prince of this world. You see, as Pharaoh was disarmed and prisoners were set free, so God, in Christ, has defeated Satan and set captives free. It still continues on. This is what Jesus said in regards to Himself in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Disarming the prince of this world. Jesus in regards to the future outcome of Satan says this in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus said, I beheld Satan as a light as lightning falling from heaven. In Romans chapter 16, Paul reminds us, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. In Hebrews, he says to us, and as much then as the children have are partakers of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death. He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death 
for all their lifetime subject to bondage. And John, under the inspiration of God and the visions that he received there in the island of Patmos, says this in the last uh, part of Revelation, near to the end, Revelation 20, he says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. Disarming the prince of this world. I want to conclude with one thought. God wanted to proclaim His name to the nations. And He did. And He asks of us, Have I proven who I am? Am I big enough of a God for you to speak of? Are you ashamed of me? Do you think I'm just not capable? What other acts must I do to show who I am? To proclaim who God is. In Exodus 9.16, he simply says this, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why does God show His power? That His name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And how is it supposed to happen? We read. You'll teach your children, you'll teach your grandchildren to tell them of how I ridiculed Egypt. So who's supposed to proclaim to the four winds that God is who He is? Folks, it's us. That's our job. So is your God big enough for you to speak of? Is your God big enough for you to proclaim? When we look at those ten plagues, we're looking at God saying, I'll take on any God. Whether it's your bank, or whether it's your hobby, or whether it's your, the person you love more than me, or the place that you love more than me. One of those gods was the, gun of the, sun, the god of the sun. I thought of the Costa Blanca. You can give him your heart. You can proclaim his name. You can be taken on by God and taken awe and awed with him. Or he'll take you on. The choices aren't really that broad. Because he won't share his glory with anyone. He means to have your heart. And to have it fully. So I pray that uh, as we prepare for Passover. In the next uh, message in our series from Egypt to the Promised Land. We come to that subject of Passover realizing this. There is no God but Yahweh. No one else deserves our worth. Let's stand and pray as we're dismissed.